0: All right, so you guys have a good afternoon, everybody good? Yeah, yeah, no sports injuries to report? Okay, all right, very good. Let's pray together, you guys, as we go to God's word once again for our afternoon session. Father, we want to just thank you, Lord, for the 10,000 reasons and so many more that we have to give you all praise and give you all glory and give you all honor. You are an amazing God and we love you. And we delight to bow under your sovereign rule and control of our lives, Lord. We recognize, as we meditated earlier today, that at times you deem it necessary and fitting to bring pain and suffering into our lives. But we can rest assured, Lord God, even as we will think your thoughts after you right now, Lord, turning to your word, that that pain and that suffering is designed and intended to make us more like your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So help us, Lord, in our time together as we meditate upon these truths. Lord, we pray that we would present them accurately in accordance with the truth of your word and by your spirit, press them deep into our souls and renew our minds with them, Lord. We thank you and we bless you in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say together, amen. 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 Well, again, I'm delighted to be with you for our second session uh, today. And let me just say this, that uh, Uh, I recognize that these messages are topical, uh, that's intentional, um, because what we're really doing is kind of surveying the entirety of the Bible, not saying everything there is to say uh, about God's sovereignty and suffering, but I felt like this was the best way to kind of get our minds and our arms and our thoughts around uh, a good presentation of the subject matter. I know the regular diet that you all have on any given Sunday is the straight exposition of a particular text. And that's what we do at our church as well. But I do sometimes when I speak at retreats like this, I give myself a little bit liberty. But hopefully as we're going from place to place to place, we're, being, um, uh, we're doing justice to the context of these different texts. So uh, hopefully uh, we're not ripping them out of their context and applying them in a way that isn't faithful to the truth of God's word. So with that said, let's dive in. Um, Uh, On last session, we set out to just give five theological, what we called pillar statements uh, about the sovereignty of God in suffering, just to lay a platform for everything else that we wanted to talk about for the remainder of our time together. So hopefully those were helpful uh, to you. Uh, My aim, as I said then, was to really just talk about and uh, proclaim a big God theology, For all of us to have, uh, as we submit to the authority of the Word of God, as God's revelation is given to us in the pages of Scripture, we will see if we read the Bible correctly and submit ourselves to what's being said here that our God is a big God. I don't even necessarily like the word big (laughs) because He's without size. Um, But what we mean by that is that uh, his being and his intentions encompass every single thing that happens in the world. uh, And for our time together, everything that happens in our lives, particularly the things that make us uncomfortable. And obviously, you don't have to be living very long to realize that our lives will be filled with discomfort, discomfort that is caused by our pain, what is caused by our suffering. And I suggested to us Uh, Hopefully we saw that from the word of God, that that pain and discomfort and suffering is designed by God. Uh, The God who loves us, the God who gave his son to die on Calvary's cross for us is the same God who designs specifically suffering for your life uh, to accomplish a particular purpose in your life. And the main purpose in your life is to conform you into the image uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we want to do for our time now and Lord willing tomorrow morning is I want us to think a little bit more personally and practically and experientially about what God desires to accomplish in our lives when we suffer. Now, the broad way to think about that is conformity to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to zero down into some particular virtues, maybe that's the way to think about it, that God is uh, intending to produce in our lives uh, as we suffer. And we do, in fact, suffer in Job chapter 5, verse 7. One of Job's friends, Eliphaz, said this, man is born for trouble as sparks fly upward. And then Job said in chapter 14 of Job in verse 1, man who is born of woman is short of days and full of turmoil. And those are two true statements that just like sparks automatically fly up from a flame or a campfire, so we are born for trouble. We will experience trouble. And it doesn't matter how good you are or how good you think you are. Trouble will find you. Sometimes we find trouble, but trouble will find us. Pain will come into our lives and suffering will come into our lives. And those statements are true. And if we don't have a solid uh, understanding of the sovereignty of God, we can easily become jaded and we can easily become cynical. And some even may lose their faith Uh, or struggle in their faith to understand those difficult times in their lives. And as believers, we need to be convinced that God has glorious purposes for us. And my hope in this time is that we can so understand, to a certain extent, God's intentions for us, that when suffering comes into our lives, we can receive it with faith rather than fear, that we can endure it with hope, rather than despair, and that we can come through it rejoicing in God rather than rebelling against God. And those are choices that we are called upon to make when suffering comes into our lives. Are we going to go through our suffering with faith? Are we going to go through our suffering with fear? Are we going to go through suffering enduring it with hope? are we going to give in to despair? And are we going to come through it rejoicing in God Rather than rebelling against God. And the answer to which one of those ways we're going to choose is predicated upon our submission to the sovereignty of God and the good purposes of God when we suffer. So, uh, with that in mind for today and tomorrow, I'm going to give us just 10 words, you guys 10 words to help you maintain the posture of worship even in the midst of suffering. Knowing that God's design in that time is, as we have said a number of times, for his glory and for our good. So I'll give us five uh, this evening and, Lord willing, five tomorrow. But first, what I want to do is give us three warnings up front as we study God's purposes in suffering. So that we don't demand more of God than we ought to demand. We're going to be looking at specific things that God is doing in our lives, and he's presented those things in the Bible, but I just want to warn us, lest we fall into the trap of thinking that God somehow or another owes us every single explanation for every hardship that he brings into our lives. In Isaiah chapter 45, if you guys want to turn there, you can, um, the prophet this is Isaiah 45, uh, verse 9. It says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker, an earthing where vessel among the vessels of earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? or the thing you are making say, He has no hands? And I, I turn us to that to say that, yes, we can try to discover what the Bible has to say about why God causes suffering, what he's doing in our lives. But we have to be very, very careful not to demand that God tells us every single thing that he's doing, right? The, the potter has absolute control over the clay. And part of what it means to be sovereign means that God has both the power and the authority to do whatever he wants to do to whomever he wants to do, for however long he wants to do it, and he does not have to answer to anyone. And let the church say, amen. That's what it means to be sovereign, that he doesn't have to counsel with anybody, he doesn't have to check with anybody, he doesn't have to ask anybody permission, and whatever he does, he gets to freely do it for his own purposes, and he doesn't have to tell you why he's doing it. He doesn't have to tell you for how long he's doing it. He doesn't have to tell you that, hey, I'm just going to do this just for a little while. He's sovereign, and that's what it means. And part of what we need to do is to make sure that we're not demanding more of God than what we can it is interesting that even uh, out of Daniel, and you guys could just flip over uh, a couple of books there from Isaiah and Daniel, how God um, had to humble Nebuchadnezzar. You guys remember that Nebuchadnezzar began to think a little bit more highly of himself than he ought to have, right? And God put him on all fours for a number of years. His fingernails grew long. He was like an animal, a beast eating the grass. And when he came to his senses here in Daniel chapter 4, Verse 34, we find these words. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's important for us to remember. Now, he's our father. Amen. And just like a child can go to his father and ask his father, um, ask her father, what are you doing? That's fine. But we always have to have a posture of submission to the divine will of God in our lives, lest we go outside of the space where God uh, wants us to be. So let me just quickly just give you the three warnings. Warning number one, you can mark this down. Don't think, as I already said this, don't think that God owes you the exact reason for why you are suffering. God is not under any obligation to reveal everything to us. He does reveal some things to us. He may even impress upon your heart very specifically what he's meaning to teach you in the middle of a hard time, but he's not obligated to do that. So you guys think about the book of Job, right? It's interesting. We get to see behind the scenes in the book of Job, but please understand you guys, Job never got to read chapters one and two of that book, Right? That goes without saying you didn't get to read the book. Right. But you understand he he was not privileged to the conversation that happened between God and Satan. He just lived it out. Right. And if you've ever read the book of Job, you get to the place where God finally says, enough, Job, it's time for you to be quiet and let me talk. And he spends chapter after chapter after chapter asking Job some very poignant questions. Where were you when I when I flung the stars in the sky? Where were you when I created the deeps? Where were you? Where were you? And then Job gets to the place and says, you know what? I finally get it. I have spoken without understanding. Now my eyes see you for who you are. I repent in dust and ashes. In other words, God never told Job why he allowed Satan to do what Satan did and it was eventually okay with Job. And he just submitted himself to the sovereign authority and rule over God and he blessed and praised God. And sometimes that will be exactly where we will find ourselves, that God may not Reveal to us all of the pain that we're going through. And if we have a good, robust theology of his sovereignty, we, along with Joel, would have to just simply submit ourselves to him and say, yes, Lord. Warning number two, don't think that any time on this side of glory, you will have perfect knowledge of what God is doing in and through your suffering. Paul said in first Corinthians thirteen twelve that we see dimly in a mirror right? That we don't see all things. And so we may have some sense of what God is doing in our lives, but we don't have perfect knowledge of what God is doing in our lives. God could be doing one thing and a thousand things all at one time. And we won't on this side of glory know every single thing that God is doing. We just don't have the bandwidth and the perspective to understand just how intricate and how infinite God's design for the suffering in our lives really are. So we have to be content with sometimes of just understanding a little bit, if any at all. And then warning number three, be on guard against hypothesizing, and I would say even theologizing, or maybe I could use the word pontificating, about why others suffer. Be careful. Be on guard against hypothesizing and theologizing and pontificating about why others are suffering. Job's friends were good friends as long as they sat around him doing what? Who knows? Doing just what you guys are doing right now, being quiet, right? And the moment that they began to open their mouths, although they said some things that were very true, they were wrong. They began to theologize as to why Job was suffering. And in chapter 13, verses 4 and 5, what did he call them? He called them worthless physicians, so you guys were great as long as your mouths were closed, right? Because they thought they knew why Joel was suffering and they were off base, even though they had some solid theological things to say, they were unwise. And so sometimes that can be us as well, that we can see somebody going through a hard space. We can see somebody uh, uh, lose their job or whatever. And then we begin to say, well, they did this and they did that. That's why this has happened. Now, sometimes you can connect those dots, right? If a person drinks alcohol from the time that they're 16 until the time that they're 55 and they get sclerosis of the liver, well, right, we can probably be sure that that connection is that they're suffering that pain because they've been drinking for 40 or 50 years. But we have to be really, really careful. I had a real real dear friend that uh, lost a child uh, in an accident. And he was at a particular church, and it was one of those churches that always tried to connect the dots between faith and everything that happened in their lives. And he had individuals come into his life and say, the reason that you and your wife lost your child is because you guys just simply didn't have enough faith. How horrible is that? Right. And they thought that somehow or another they were doing them, a, you know, they were counseling them and they weren't at all. And we want to be really, really careful about diagnosing other people as to why they are going through what they're going through. Okay. All right, with those as a warning, let's dive in and look at these five words that we want to describe for our time in terms of seeing what the Bible has to say about reasons that God sends and designs suffering in our lives. And the first word, mark this down, is simply humility. Humility. Now, we're going to be jumping around to a number of texts here, you guys. So this is kind of Bible drill here. And the first text we want to get to is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We've already looked at it briefly, but I want to turn our attention to it once again. This is the Apostle Paul, again, writing to the Corinthian church. This is one of four letters that he's written to them. This letter in particular is a defensive letter where he's defending his apostleship against the attacks that have been waged against him by individuals who have infiltrated the Corinthian church. And one of the things that he's doing here is he's describing... That he himself is an apostle, just like the rest of the apostles and these so-called super apostles who were false teachers. And he begins to talk about some of the privileges that God had given him. He's a little sheepish about doing that. He's very reluctant about doing it, but he knows it's necessary in order for him again to establish his authority that the Corinthian believers wouldn't then turn away from the gospel that he preached. And so he tells them, if your Bibles are open there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, That he knew a man, and he's talking about himself, whether in the body or apart uh, from the body. He says, I do not know. This is verse 3 of chapter 12. God knows. I know a man who was caught up into paradise, which would be heaven, and heard inexpressible words, which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, he said, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses, for I do not wish to boast. I will not be foolish, for I will be speaking the truth. But I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me and hears from me. And then we find these words here in verses seven uh, and eight, where Paul begins to describe suffering in his life as a result of the privileged blessing that God had given to him. Notice what he says in verse seven, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, For this reason, you make the connection, right? Because God gave me these great revelations. Because of that, he says, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself, Now, you guys know this, right? When there's a word and or a phrase that's in the same sentence twice, it's there for a reason. And in this context, it's there as a sandwich. This is what we call bookends, right? The bookends, and just to make sure that we get what Paul is saying, the bookends is that this suffering came into my life to keep me from exalting myself. In other words, it isn't as though he's exalted himself already But this suffering was given to him so that he wouldn't exalt himself. In other words, the suffering that God designed in this context was to keep the Apostle Paul humble because of the great spiritual privileges that God had given to him. Now, we don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. I'm glad we don't know. I think God was wise in not telling us because if we knew what it was and we got the same thorn, we would boast about, I have the same thorn that the Apostle Paul has, right? And we would just brag and boast about that. So we don't know what it is, but it is a thorn and it is in the flesh. I take that to mean that it was something that was given to him that, 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 that bothered him, that tormented him physically. We don't know what it is. There may be some evidence in other places that maybe it was an eye disease of some sort. Sometimes you guys read the Apostle Paul and at the end of his book, he will say something like, look at how large of a letter that I write with. Some have speculated that maybe it was his eyesight. We just don't know. But whatever it was, he says, it tormented him. So this is not just like a hangnail, you guys, right? This is, this is, this is something that was so serious that it says there that he employed the Lord three times to take it away. And we'll see in a moment that God did not do that. God left it there. It it was a continuous suffering that the Apostle Paul endured over and over again and again. And it was designed by God to produce humility in the Apostle Paul's life and to keep him humble. God had to cultivate humility in his great apostle lest he become puffed up and proud And isn't it interesting, as we think about this, that very oftentimes we hear that after suffering comes the blessing? How many of you guys have ever heard that, that after you suffer and you come out of the suffering, then God blesses you? I'm the only one. I used to hear that all the time, right? It is interesting. That may be the case. We did see that with Job. He did get blessed after his suffering. But sometimes, quite frankly, you guys, suffering comes after the blessing. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That God had given him such a spiritual blessing to be caught up into heaven, to see and to hear things that he wasn't even permitted to speak. That God had given him all of this privilege. And in order for him not to take that and then to think more highly of himself, God gave him something in his life to keep him humble. And may I just encourage us, particularly, I'll say this, and I know my pastor brothers understand this. And for those of you that minister at a high level, those of you that are very gifted in ministry, very oftentimes this might be our lot. That God gives us profound spiritual privileges, profound spiritual blessing, profound spiritual influence. And what God will often do is bring trials and, and suffering into our lives to keep us humble. Because it's very easy for us to begin to think more highly of ourselves predicated upon what God has allowed us to do and accomplish for his name's sake. I tell young pastors all the time, they say, hey, I want to be a pastor. Isn't that great? is that wonderful? And I just say this, prepare to suffer. Prepare to suffer. Because very often, that's the way God keeps his servants humble, is by bringing trials into their lives. And that's exactly what happened to the Apostle Paul. Humility is a cardinal virtue for the Christian. And 1 Peter 5, 5 says this, Close yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Think about that. God opposes the proud. If you want to be in opposition uh, with God, if you want to be at warfare with God, just be proud. But God gives grace to the humble. And God loves us so much that he wants us to stay in the position of humility, so much so that he will bring suffering into our lives so that we won't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. It's very hard to have an inflated view of self when you're going through the fiery furnace of suffering. Isn't it? Let me just ask you guys this question. When is your prayer life the most robust? When everything is going well or when there's hardship in your life? You don't have to answer that question because I know where the answer is, right? I mean, it's really disciplined. You can have a really good prayer life. But let God pull out the proverbial rug from under your feet and watch your prayer life just excel, right? Because what? You're being driven down on your knees. You're being humbled, and you recognize that I can't change my circumstances. I can't change my my pain. I can't remove it. And you turn toward God, just like Paul turned toward God in humility. That is a sign of humility when we turn and we move outside of ourselves and realize that we can't do anything to fix our circumstances. And God wants us to be in that exact place C.S. Lewis wrote, and I quote A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above, end quote. And you know what that something is above? God. It's God. And so God will humble us by our pain. That's what he does. And he loves us so much that he will do that. And so can I just encourage us this evening to embrace the humbling providence of God. And if you're in a space right now, and it doesn't matter how old you are or how long you've been walking with the Lord. Right? Pain is pain. Pain is painful to a 16-year-old, just like pain is painful to a 65-year-old. right? And God means, if you are walking uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ, he means that pain in your life right now to produce humility, to humble you to drive you down on your knees, that you might turn and look up to him. Independence, which is what we want to see next. So we move from humility to dependency. Humility to dependency. And we want to stay in the same text here because Paul tells us another reason why God sends trials into our lives. Paul writes in verse 8 that, concerning this, I employed the Lord three times that it might leave me. Just as a side, when you're suffering, it is okay to pray to God and ask Him to remove it. Right? It's okay. It's not unspiritual. Every time you suffer, you don't have to say, Hallelujah, bring it on, God. More, more, more. Right? I don't want you to leave thinking that I'm saying it. I'm not saying that at all. The Apostle Paul was in such turmoil that he went to the Lord three times and he implored the Lord. He begged God, he beseeched the Lord to take this thing away from me. God, I don't want it in my life. I would rather live and serve you without having this pain in my life. It's okay to do that. But notice the response that he received in verse 9. And he has said to me, right, it's interesting, and he has said to me. It it, it suggests that, that this is the answer, the continuous answer that God has given to the Apostle Paul. That God didn't change his mind, that this is what, this is, this is God saying that this is your life, Paul. And what did he say? My grace is sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. In other words, Paul, I do not want you to be dependent on yourself. I want you to be dependent on me. That I'm not going to take this away from you. So you can remain humble and coupled with remaining humble, you can remain dependent upon me. I don't want you to have your own power flowing out of yourself, but I want you to experience my power and it be perfected in your life. Trials and suffering have a unique, emptying power for us. And we realize just how weak we really are when we try to change our circumstances and our difficulties and remove the pain from our lives, and when God doesn't allow that to happen, we have no other recourse at that time than to cry out to God and to ask God to fill us to do what God would have us to do. And let me just say, this is really hard for us. This is hard for people in general, but this is really hard for Americans, I think, because we are, we are so self-sufficient. I mean, we, we, we get taught from the time that we were born Right. To pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and get to a place where you don't have to depend upon anybody else and be self-sufficient. And that's almost a goal that is held out there for us to aspire to. I'm not saying everything about that is wrong. We have to be really careful, you guys, that we don't bring that into our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, that we don't bring that into our faith, that somehow self-sufficiency is a virtue. It is not. And to the extent that we're impacted by that, God designed suffering in our lives to empty us of ourselves that he might fill us with himself. And notice Paul's response, you guys, in the text. What a perspective they have. I'm still trying to get there. Notice what he says. Verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And then Paul responds, most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content. Notice what he says with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, and with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And let the church say, amen. Amen. Right? In other words, I'm content then in my sufferings if what that means is I'm going to experience more of the power of Christ in me. How many of you want to experience more of the power of Christ in your life? I have both hands up. I do. And right? if you do, part of the means that God uses to get more of His power in you it's to design difficulties and insults and trials and persecutions and difficulties in your life so that he might feel you up. Paul said this in the beginning of this letter. You can just mark it down and read it later in chapter one, verse eight. He says, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. Which came to us in Asia, that we were burned excessively beyond our strength. That's that idea. We were burned excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. It's amazing. That God burdened Paul and, and his associates so much so that they thought they were going to die. And the purpose in God burdening them was so that they wouldn't trust in themselves, but trust in God who has the power to raise the dead. God wants each and every one of us to be in that same place where our faith is in his power and not in ourselves. There's a story, and and I I won't give you guys the whole story, but it's an amazing statement that I think is worthy of of keeping uh, tucked away someplace to guard ourselves from getting to a certain place. Some of you, many of you know who King Uzziah was. Uh, The prophet Isaiah writes about him uh, in Isaiah chapter 6 of the year that King Uzziah died. I saw the Lord, that famous, wonderful chapter there. King Uzziah was a king of Israel, and he reigned. Anybody know how long he reigned? 55 years. He was an amazing, amazing king. And uh, his life is chronicled for us in the book of Chronicles in uh, chapter uh, 26 in particular, chapters 25 and chapter 26. Uh, And he didn't end very well. And I just want to read this little portion. You guys can read this on your own uh, when you get an opportunity. It says this of King Zion. In Jerusalem he made engines of war, invented by skill for men, to be on the towers and on the corners for the purpose of shooting arrows and great stones. He was an amazing king. And then it says this, hence his fame spread afar, for he was marvelously helped until he became strong. And you have this pocket there for a second. He was marvelously helped until he became strong. And the next verse says, but when he became strong, his heart was so proud that he acted corruptly. And you can read the rest of the story. And, and, and on his epithet, literally read, here lies Uzziah, a leper. And the, I, I, I bring you to that text to show you that, man, pride is really, really dangerous. Self-sufficiency is really, really dangerous. And God loves us so much that He will do what is necessary to keep us from that, even inflicting and afflicting us with great pain. We cannot be independent and God dependent at the same time. It doesn't work. If your glass is full of yourself, God will not pour into it His grace. He'll have to shatter the glass so that yourself can fall out and then he'll remake the glass and fill the glass with himself. And that shattering process can be very, very painful. But praise the Lord when he doesn't because he doesn't just leave us there, but he fills us with himself to be dependent upon his power. Jesus said, didn't he, in Matthew 11, come unto me, all you who work really, really hard and who are a heavy laden. In other words, we have burdens pressing down upon them. It says, come to me, right? And you will find rest for your souls. He calls us to take his yoke upon us and learn from him, right? To learn from him because he is lowly and gentle in heart. And then he says it again, and you will find rest for your souls. For his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Basically, what that is saying is this yoke up with the Lord Jesus Christ and let him do the work. That's the idea. Humble yourself. Stop, uh, put it this way stop plowing with your own cow. <laughs> Humble yourself and be dependent upon the Lord. And he will fill you with himself. And God sometimes. Have to get us there, he does get us there through suffering. Word number three. We look at humility, dependency. The next word is sympathy. I work really hard in getting these things to rhyme, by the way, you guys are just wanted to so know that. Sympathy. What do I mean by that? I look back at Second Corinthians and let's turn to chapter one, Second Corinthians. Sympathy. God sometimes brings suffering in our lives for sympathy. Let me explain what I mean. I want to read these verses in our hearing of chapter one of second Corinthians. Verse three through seven. Paul writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. And I want you to listen to Paul's logic, you guys, as he talks about his affliction. Because God the Father, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, that suffering, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings, which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are shares of our sufferings, so also you are shares of our comfort. Those are some hard sentences, right? Almost sounds like double talk. But what Paul is just simply saying is this. That we don't only suffer for ourselves, but God sends suffering in our lives because he has a purpose. And the purpose of sending sufferers in our lives is so that we can be comforted by God, but not only comfort ourselves by God, but also in turn comfort you who also are going to suffer for Christ's sake. Did you guys catch that? Does that make sense? In other words, he is saying this: that part of the reason that God brings trials in our lives is so that we can be sympathetic toward others who may be going through the same thing that we have gone through. And we're able to bring to them, having gone through what they are going through now, a sense of comfort from the Lord because we've received the comfort from the Lord. It's amazing, loved ones, that your suffering and your trial isn't always just for you. It is for you, but it is also for someone else. And some of you probably have experienced that before, that you have gone through something and and God has brought you through it. You met God in a new way and in a fresh way. You saw new vistas of his grace and his mercy. And then you met somebody else and they began to tell you their story and their story of what they're currently going through. It's exactly what you went through. And guess what God wants you to do at that moment? is to comfort them in the same way God comforted you. God wants to use you, your brokenness, and how God put you back together again, that grace you received when you were going through that difficulty, how you and your wife made it through that season in which the finances just didn't add up, how how you as a child made it through when you were diagnosed with asthma, whatever it is that prevented you from playing sports, whatever it is, and God met you in that, that way. I guarantee you, you live long enough and you will meet somebody else going through the exact same thing that you went through. And it is a glorious, wonderful opportunity for you to put the glory and grace and mercy of Christ on display in that person's life by sharing how God met you. That's what Paul is saying. Paul became sympathetic in large measure because of the comfort he received during his affliction. And that was by God's design. And I'm defining sympathy, you guys, simply as this the ability to empathetically show transformative compassion to others because of a shared experience. I'll say it again if you maybe writing it down. The sympathy that we're talking about, that Paul is describing here, is the ability to empathetically show transformative compassion to others because of a shared experience. It is providing grace field counsel and comfort toward others because you have something in common, namely affliction and then the comfort that God has given to you that you're now giving to somebody else. The question is, do we love other people and do we love God enough that we are open to suffering so that we can receive God's comfort and then be used by God to comfort somebody else? You know who makes make the greatest counselors in the church? This has been my experience: those who have suffered the grace, right, and they have pressed into the grace and the truth of God's word, right? Have you ever just... and God's word stands on its own; it doesn't need our experience to be efficacious. I want to say that, right? So you don't have to go through every single thing that somebody comes to you to be able to relate to them and give them. Just give them God's word. So I want to say that. But how, 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 how many of you guys have ever gone with a problem to somebody and you just didn't get a sense that they related to what you were going through at all? Okay, right. And even though they might give you truth, and at the end of the day, that's what you need is truth, right? But it is really helpful, is it not, when you sit down with somebody and begin to describe your problem and they begin to nod their head and then they begin to say, you know what, sister, I was right where you were, right? And every word that you share, you can tell that they, they know they feel your pain because they have experienced your pain. And then they're able to come alongside of you in a very powerful way to share how God has met them and how God will meet you as well in his grace. And God wants to make many of us sympathetic that way. And God does that through our suffering. God does something in us to do something through us. He brings suffering so that we might bring comfort. It's interesting that Peter, um, you guys know the story. It's just before Jesus goes to the cross in Luke 22, 31 to 32. I want to turn there. And, and uh, Jesus says to Peter, this is Simon, Simon. Satan has uh, asked to sift you. So Satan clearly is asking permission to God to sift Peter. Right. And once again, it shows us that Satan can't do anything without the permission of sovereign God. Right. And Jesus says to Peter that I have prayed for you. And when you turn around, strengthen the brother. it's a a fascinating portion of God's word. In other words, Peter, I'm going to allow Satan to have you for a while. But it's not gonna cause you to go all the way away from the faith. It's gonna be painful, you're gonna suffer, right? he was sipping like weed, he didn't have that moment of failure, but I've prayed for you. And and because of the fact that Jesus prayed for Peter, Peter was going to turn around and he says this: when you turn around, strengthen the brethren. You gotta put that together. What is Jesus saying? Jesus said, You're about to go through something right now. And I'm going to meet you in such a way that when you turn around, you are going to be now more equipped to strengthen the brethren. And I suggest to you that that's why we have the book of first Peter. If you read first Peter carefully, it is all about suffering from Peter's perspective. And Peter got it. And Peter was a guy that didn't like suffering at all. He was the guy that stood in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and said, you know what? You are not going to the cross. But he got it. And I would suggest to you that he got it because God allowed him to suffer and God met him with his grace to turn him around. And then he was able to write a whole letter to comfort believers throughout the ages. James says about uh, Job and his an amazing statement. In chapter five, and I'm just giving you some examples of how this happens, and this can happen about uh, for us as well. He says, "As an example, to James, chapter five, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured." You have heard of the endurance of Job. I don't think we always think about Job as a prophet, but it seems to be in a category. that You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You see what James is saying. Look at the sufferings of the prophets of old and see how God had compassion on them and allow that to show you compassion. And how many of us how many saints over the ages have read the book of Job to great comfort in their own lives? God designed that. And then a just profound portion of God's word that's just amazing to me in Hebrews. You guys mark this down. Hebrews chapter 2. I'll back up to verse 17. And it reads this way. Therefore, it's speaking of the Lord Jesus Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice this verse 18 of Hebrews chapter two. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who who are tempted. That's why Jesus is called the what kind of high priest? You say it. Sympathetic high priest. The writer of Hebrews says he is sympathetic to us and able to come and aid us because of the things that he suffered. He suffered, and so now he can come to us in our suffering and bring us aid. And if it worked for the Lord Jesus Christ, not that we become high priests, but we are priests, right? We do believe, and I know you believe in the priesthood of all believers. And we serve each other that way. And God makes us more useful to him because he brings suffering into our lives. How many of you guys know the song? It is well with my soul. Everybody knows it. Who knows the, the author's story? Horatio Spafford, right? Some of you are shaking a knot in your head. You know that, right? He lost four of his daughters, right? He was supposed to go back over to London, and uh, he stayed behind, and his, his family went through, and they made it. they They got uh, killed in a storm, and as he was traveling back, and he got to the place where he thought that it may have been that they uh, died in the storm, he wrote and penned, it is well with my soul, All right? Think about it. How many Christians for over 100 years have found great comfort in singing it is well with my soul. And we would not have that song had it not been for the suffering of Horatio's back. Now I would imagine he would want his daughter's back. I would. But God is sovereign. And can I suggest to you that some of you have had a soul placed in your soul. Because of the things that you have suffered. There's a hymn that God is wanting you to write from your heart, from what you've learned of His grace and His compassion, from what you have suffered. He's a good God that way. There was a time in our life when my wife and I, we had. It was early on in our daughter's uh, life, and we had to make some really um, critical medical decisions for her. Um, One of the decisions was whether or not to put a feeding tube in, um, and we just did not know what to do. We were praying and praying, and she was maybe about two at the time. And we were just praying, and we went to a uh, T4G conference, together for the Gospel Conference, and we were sitting there just singing songs of praise. And I look over, and about maybe five people... Away from me was the guy that I went to seminary with that I hadn't seen in about three years, and so after the session we began to talk and everything. We sharing his story. His wife was there, and, we, and he asked about our story, so we began to share it and everything. And then my wife began to talk, and, and this is a funny by the side. When they can talk and know their life story within five minutes, I don't say that, that's not that's a good thing. It's amazing. And, and so before you know it, my wife and his wife connected, and they came back over to us, and this couple began to share with us. That they had a special needs son, and four years prior to us seeing each other at this conference, they had to make the same decision that we had to make. And they began to just share with us that this is what we had to think through. This was it, and we were just so humbled that God answered our prayer about a decision that we had to make through the trial of somebody else. That's the way this works, and it is amazing. So God wants to do that for us. And in and through us. So humility, dependency, sympathy. I have two more and then we'll be done. Number four, it's what I'm calling authenticity. Authenticity. And for that, let's turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter one. Let me just read a couple of verses here. 1 Peter chapter one. Peter, this book is about suffering. It's written to those who are under great trials, and he's writing to encourage them to keep the faith, not to be surprised at the suffering that they're going through. And he writes this in verse six. He says, in this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that this is the purpose of the trial, so that the proof for the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what Peter is saying is this, that the trials are coming by God's design in order to test the authenticity, the genuineness of your faith. And that's oftentimes why God sends trial into our lives, so that our our faith might be proven to be the genuine article. Our faith is tested by fire. And he talks about our faith being more precious than gold, and it's used in that context because some of you guys know this, not that anybody would be goldsmith here. One of the ways to, to, to prove just how pure gold is is to put it in fire, and then it burns off the dross and the impurities, and what remains is genuine gold. It's authentic gold. And Paul is, or Peter is using that as an illustration that that's what God does through suffering and trials in our lives. He's, he's using it to burn off the dross of our faith so that our faith might be proven to be genuine. that it's authentic. There have been people who, because of trials, have shown themselves not to be believers. They have simply walked away from the faith. And I know your theology is like my theology, and that's not a matter of them losing their salvation. We don't believe that people can lose their salvation, right? But they went out from us because they were never part of us. And part of the means that God uses, even in that sense, is to bring trials to prove that they were never part of the community of faith. But for those who are genuinely his, he uses it to show forth the genuineness of our faith. It's like that couple that I mentioned on yesterday that went through that extraordinary trial in two months. The fact that they are still standing and trusting the Lord is an amazing reality. And it shows that they genuinely belong to Jesus because there's no other human explanation for why they're still trusting Jesus. And God will do that in our lives, not only for you, but to show that my people love me. All right? He does that. And this idea of what he says there, that at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that our faith may result in praise and glory and honor. And I take that to be praise and glory and honor that that somehow God will give to us. Not that we merit that, but but, but we will share in the glory of God. Our faith is so precious that when God comes, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 4, that that stop judging one another and, and, and let it be to the time that Christ comes. And each man will receive praise from God. Almost, if I could put it this way, and I say this cautiously, that God will applaud us for our faith standing in the midst of the trials that he's designed in our lives. And he will put us on display throughout eternity for the genuineness of our faith. Can I just ask, because I don't want to be presumptuous here, do you have authentic faith? Do you know that your faith? is authentic this evening. Do you know that you are genuinely trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And you are here, listening even to the sound of my voice and the word of God, because you love Jesus, because your faith is anchored in him, that you have fully given your life over to the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is and not just for what he gives. And he gives great gifts. He blesses us with wonderful things. Family and friends and possessions and, and happiness and all of those things. But is that the only reason why you're trusting in Christ? And one of the things that God does is he designs trials very often to take those things away from us. So that we can know that we're loving God, not as the gift giver, but we're loving God as the greatest gift. So we can say, as Job said, though he's slaving, yet I will trust him. You guys do know what the whole book of Job is all about? The whole book of Job is all about God proving to Satan that Job loves God because he's God and not because of all of the gifts that God gave him. You guys go back and you read the first two chapters when when God and Satan are having that conversation. That's what what Satan accused Job of. Satan accused Job of only loving you. He only worships you, God, because you give him all of this stuff and you protect him. Take your protection away from him. Let me take all of his stuff and what does Satan say? He will curse you to your face. That's what the book of Job is all about. God Proving that his people love him, not because he gives them good gifts, but because of who he is. And God will send trials and pain our life to take things away that sometimes can even become idols. To strip us, if I can say it this way, spiritually naked and bare. And we're left with nothing and no one but God. And we will trust him when that happens. Pray that we will pray that I will. That's one of the designs of suffering in the life of the believer. God does that. Financial loss, family loss, health loss, all of it may come to strip us of the things that we cling to to show us the genuineness and the authenticity of our faith. I have one last one and then we'll close. Humility, dependency, Sympathy, authenticity, and the last one is what I'm calling piety. It's an old English word that we don't use a whole lot. Piety simply means godliness. Godliness. This is in Hebrews, chapter 12. Just to sum up, that God our Father wants his children to share in his righteousness and in his holiness. And one of the means that he uses to accomplish that is through discipline which causes pain. We had looked at this briefly in our last session. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 11. The author of Hebrews says this, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons, and sons would include daughters. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom he loves, for those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more or much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live for they, that is our earthly fathers, discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us, here it is, for our good, so that we may share his holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I know that's a lot to take in, but he's just simply saying this. Our loving Heavenly Father disciplines us. He causes us pain because he wants us to share his holiness, right? And that is in part the pathway to greater holiness, and it is through suffering. As again, God trains us for more righteousness and for more godliness and for more piety. He brings hard things into our lives to strengthen our faith. Where are my weightlifters in the room? Come on. Don't be bashful. Get them out. Where are my weightlifters? Okay, our weightlifters. There's our buff guy right there. Right? I I'm looking at McKayla Scott, right? You guys know her dad. Right? You guys do not want to work out with McKayla Scott, right? She will embarrass everybody here in this room, right? So, why do we put big old weights on our muscles? right? Because it's not pleasant, right? But you want to strain the muscles so that the muscle might what? Grow! Right? You put pressure on it. You put pain on it, right? And as it rests, it grows. And that, that, that's just an analogy of how it works even in the spiritual realm. That's what God does to us. He puts pressure on us. He strains our faith so that our faith might grow. We might share in His holiness. That's the idea. It doesn't mean this, this idea of discipline doesn't necessarily mean that this only happens when we do something wrong. It could be that. It could be corrective discipline. That means to say that we're going on the wrong path and our Father disciplines us to turn us around. It can be that. Or it may be what's called formative discipline. Formative discipline is not anything wrong, but it's just discipline so that you might grow more. And we have both from our Father. And both quite frankly are painful. But both have the same purpose of producing in us the very holiness of Almighty God. And again, that ties into what we said earlier about being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we're growing in godliness as a result of the pain that God brings into our lives. Our time is almost spent, so i want to turn into some of these texts. Let me just read them. Again, the book of Hebrews, this is an amazing statement. Read it at some point when you have time. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, and it's speaking of Jesus Christ, and it says this, although he, that is Jesus Christ, was a son, He learned obedience from the things which he suffered. Now you just got to take that verse and sit down in the quiet table with a cup of coffee and just allow the spirit of God to impress that upon your mind. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, the Bible says, learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That's amazing. Right? In other words, his growing in obedience, the, the, the theater of his growth in obedience was what he suffered. And it will be the same for us. How much more than for us? If the sinless one learned obedience through suffering, how much more than for us? Because we are his sons and daughters as well. And what was good for him is also good for us. And God, in his sovereignty, will bring then suffering into our lives. The psalmist said this in Psalm 119, 68. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Right? Before I was afflicted, before I was suffering, I went astray, but now that I have suffered, I now keep your word, O Lord. In verse 71 of Psalm 119, he writes, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And then in verse 75, the psalmist said this I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteousness and thy faithful, and in thy faithfulness you have afflicted me. What a perspective. That's the perspective that we should all want. That we rejoice in our affliction because we know that God designed it to produce greater godliness in our lives. So we looked at five words humility, dependency, sympathy, authenticity, and piety. These are the things, some of the things, that God desires to produce in your life as he designs suffering tailor-made for each one of you. So rejoice, even in your pain. You can be sorrowful and yet rejoice in knowing, again, that not one ounce of suffering is wasted in your life. But God has designed it for a greater and glorious purpose that we will spend eternity praising him for. Allow eternity to enter into time and give you the right perspective on the sovereignty of God and suffering. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is so clear. It speaks so powerfully to us. We've covered a lot of ground, Lord God, and we pray that this would be helpful to us. We pray that you would use these words to cause us to think biblically about the hard times in our lives, that they are designed by you, Lord, with glorious purposes, that you mean them for our good and for your glory. So we pray, dear Heavenly Father, that we would embrace the difficulties of our days, knowing, Lord God, that through it all you are with us, that you are perfecting us, and that you are making us more like your Son, our Savior and King, the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, for anyone in this room under the sound of my voice who does not yet know you and the pardoning of their sin, that as they hear these wonderful truths of your saving mercies, particularly of the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on Calvary's cross, so that sinners might turn from their sins and embrace him as their substitute and as their atoning sacrifice that they might know what it means to be forgiven and be clothed in his righteousness. So we pray, Lord God, for any unbeliever in this room that you might grant them the gift of repentance and faith that They might believe to the saving of his or her soul. Lord, for those who are suffering, Lord God, encourage their hearts. Help us even in our time together, Lord God, to take time to really comfort one another with the comfort that we have received from you, to build one another up, to stand with one another as sympathetic brothers and sisters, we love you, Lord. We commend the remainder of our evening to you. Bless it and encourage us through it. We pray in Jesus' name. Let all God's people say together, Amen. Amen. God bless you.